independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. You got to get people to care. You got to get people curious. And there's also a lot of people who are fearful of a lot of the things that I study. That's another challenge is how do you take somebody who absolutely hates spiders and change their mind? How can we better convey the science behind sustainability to the general public so that people will, first of all, be more interested in it in the first place and feel more motivated to actually take action? How do insects tie into this picture of sustainability? And even though they're often viewed as a nuisance, why is their presence so vital to our sustainable future? That's just the tip of the iceberg of what you'll hear today. To check out our limited 2019 Green Dreamer planners created to holistically support all that you do this year, just head to greendreamer.com. Your purchase will also support the planting of 50 trees and the continued production of Green Dreamer. So thank you so much if you get to find something that you love. More on this later along with a discount code just for you. But for now, on to our episode. Let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast for creatives, visionaries, and entrepreneurs dreaming of a sustainable future. Thank you for bringing your light. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. Our guest today is a biologist with an appetite for adventure. Known for his fieldwork in the Amazon rainforest, he documents his research on his YouTube channel called The Jungle Diaries and is also host of United Airlines show Big Metal Bird and The CW's Ready, Set, Pet. Before this, he's been the host of The Techno Show, has appeared on Animal Planet and Discovery Channel, and has also published in Wired, BBC, National Geographic, Wall Street Journal, and more. His work really bridges the gap we have right now between the scientific community and the general public, and I think you will be really inspired by his thoughts on how we can better connect the two. Green Dreamer, starting off with what inspired his passion for nature, here's Phil Torres. Yeah, I, I like to say I was kind of born that way. I, I think my parents tell me stories of when I was two and three, and I would be picking up leaves and telling them how they're different. Um, and some of my very first memories of my life are of just being outside my yard, catching snakes, finding bones in the state park by me and bringing those home, uh, just doing anything I could to be outside. And I think I just naturally loved the environment and had a lot of fun in it and was really curious about it. But I think a lot of my care and my realization that we need to do something to help the environment happened when I was probably around five. There was this field of grass near my home. My home was in a new development. So there's still you know, just open prairie next to us. And I used to go there and catch snakes and stuff all the time and just, you know, take a look at them and then release them. And one time I went there and it would 
it was completely mowed down and mm. they were building a tennis court there. And when I was looking at all this grass on the ground, I saw one of my favorite snakes. It, was, it wasn't like the most common garter snake. It was the really rare one. And I saw it there on the ground, just completely cut in half by the lawnmower. And I remember just sitting there looking at this thing and being like, this really sucks. Like, I really like that this thing exists and that it had this home here and I could go find it and I could tell people about it. And now it's just dead. And not only was it that, but also the fact that probably the people who are developing this area or who cut that grass probably don't care about that thing that I care about. And I think little moments like that through growing up and I mean, I, I loved butterflies and bugs and all those things that I think a lot of people pass over. Everybody's into bears and sharks and um, you know sloths and those kinds of animals, which are amazing in their own right. But I realized there's so many out there that I love and I want other people to care about because they're the first things you see when you step out your front door usually. And so it's immediately accessible. I just loved it, cared about it and want other people to love it too. So it sounds like quite early on in your life, you could feel this tension and the impact of human development on our ecosystems. Definitely. And, you know, I, I think it's it's weird because like I get it, like where my home was used to be a prairie too, and now there's a home. And so there is this kind of understanding that people do have needs, but there are ways of and that's what conservation is. You know, it's not saying we're not going to do anything. It's saying let's find this middle ground where we can maximize the benefit to the local environment and make sure that humans are getting what they need. So do you think part of this resistance against conserving or protecting our lands has to do with people not understanding that you can find a middle ground, people thinking that it's either or? Yeah. I mean, that's it's weird because I, I took classes on conservation biology and it wasn't until years out of university and actually seeing the application of conservation that I realized like the, the term conservation means you find this middle ground. It means you talk it out. It means you do the research to figure out how do we best approach this scenario and do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. It's not preservation. It's not saying we're not going to do a thing we're going to leave every, you know, every tree in place because that's not realistic. But there are realistic ways of doing it in a very sustainable way of doing it where we can replace certain habitats and kind of looking at our, our past too. Because the more time I work in far off places that have real issues of deforestation, the more I start to look back home and be like, wow, like look at what we did across the United States where we used to have this incredible prairie full of millions of bison and all these other animals. And now the middle of America is completely not prairie. And so as economies evolve and countries evolve, we can start to say, okay, maybe it's time that we're, we're over this stage of our development and we can start to build the prairie back again and see what we could do right at home. What do you think that means for us in the so-called developed world? And what does this mean for places where they're currently trying to develop? It's it's challenging because the places that they're currently trying to develop usually are challenging places to live. There's usually low income. There's, um, you know, the rule of law isn't as, as clean cut when it comes to regulations, when it comes to doing it right. And so it's very easy for us to kind of look at that and judge it, whereas we've already 
We've already done that. Like that is how the United States got developed. A lot of countries got developed was just through making those decisions really quickly and thinking, oh, we have endless room to grow. But then all of a sudden we're starting to look at it and saying, you know what? We don't have endless room to grow and we should start to really look at some of these areas and say, this has got to be off limits forever because nature is a gift that, that we need to preserve. And yes, there's a lot that we can get out of it that can help our economies and that kind of thing. But at some point, we have to set our priorities straight. And, you know, when it comes to developed countries, I think the way we can lead now is through the way we buy and the rules that we have on the things that we import and really starting to set the tone there and set the limits and saying we're only going to do you know, I love how many companies are now doing sustainable palm oil because palm oil is just plain devastating, but there are sustainable ways of doing it. And so we should give those sustainable companies our money so that the other companies that are just destroying everything in sight will say, hey, you know, maybe we could be sustainable too. And then we could make people pay a bit of a premium and everybody wins. You know, it's up to us who are educated, who are more aware of what's happening out there to make the right choices. So our consumer choices locally can have ripple effects across the globe now that our world is globalized. Hugely. Yeah. I mean, I, I always tell people who live in New York that you are holding a string and that string is attached to many places around the world that are thousands of miles away. And the decisions you make here will pull it, it'll push it. But they feel it down there. And I think I got my first lesson in that when I was first starting to work in the southeastern part of Peru, this area called Tambopata. And it's this absolutely perfect rainforest. I mean, you see jaguars everywhere. You see hundreds of macaws in a single day. It's, it's insane. And I've, a lot of my discoveries and science work has been down there. But what is knocking at their doorstep is illegal gold mining. Around 2008, when the more developed world's economy started to slump, that made the gold price go up. And so these gold miners or people who are maybe thinking about gold mining illegally, all of a sudden were like, wow, we can actually make way more money now doing gold mining than we used to. They used to you know, work all month and maybe make a few hundred bucks. Now they can work a week and make that same amount. Because of what our economies were doing, because of whatever irresponsible things we were doing back at home, all of a sudden that string is being pulled down in the Amazon and illegal gold mining is just taken off. And, and it's almost like an independent community down there where it's illegal to do that in Peru. But the mayor of this closest town called Puerto Maldonado is pro-mining and mm. he's a miner. I'm sure they all kind of get paid off down there. So you have to look at that and say, you know what? A lot of that has to do with our purchase decisions. And there is a no dirty gold campaign that's out there that I think is a really amazing one because fortunately people are aware of diamonds and blood diamonds and that they can come from pretty terrible places, but not a lot of people realize that gold too can come from pretty bad place. And a lot of the gold that is mined illegally ends up you know, on people's fingers and on their rings and that kind of thing. Um, it kind of gets washed into the system. So I got married in this last year and we made sure that all of our rings were from sustainable sources. And there's some big names like Tiffany's does it. Um, we also went to Brilliant Earth and there's these companies out there that you can't really tell, you know, it's maybe a little bit more expensive, but it's so worth it knowing that this is recycled gold or um, you know, taken from a place that is done sustainably and ethically and treats the people right. 
it's funny how much the more I work in these remote parts of the world doing research, the more I realize that there are things right at home that, that we need to be doing. And it, it actually makes a difference. It's not, it's not like a pretend thing. Like this is the real world that if you buy certain things that has an impact somewhere where that came from. That's rewarding to hear because I feel like day to day when we're just making these more mindful consumer choices, it's hard to actually feel the impact of that. So it's great to hear that you, you've you seen both sides and you feel like it does make a difference. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, I've been to some sustainable um, places for exotic woods down in southern Mexico where they have these rotational plots of mahogany. And it is amazing. Like they set up these camera traps in their forest and they were getting photos of jaguars and taper and these these animals that are pretty rare. And this is a forest that they're actually using to harvest mahogany, but they rotate it. They have 50 plots and they take one plot per year for 50 years. And by the time they come back to that first plot, the trees have grown back. And it was really cool to see. And that was with Rainforest Alliance. I was looking at some of their work down there and I was like, wow, like you look at these people, they've all got smiles on their face. They're all making a good living for the region because they're able to charge a premium. And it all has to do with people somewhere deciding, hey, we want to pay a little bit more to know that what we're buying is going to make a difference. And you see the same thing with coffee plantations, with chocolate plantations, with all sorts of products. And so that sustainability and looking for something that is certified, sustainable, fair trade, that that's real. That's that's real people's lives and real habitat full of wonder that are being protected there. I'd love to take a few steps back. So with your passion for nature, what led you to becoming a science communicator? I started in college where I loved doing research and I was I was very fortunate to get to go on some crazy expeditions where I was in Venezuela and we found about 35 new species in three and a half weeks of beetles. And I was like, that's really cool. But while we were there, we were literally looking for beetles on the sides of waterfalls. We were like chasing waterfalls out there to look for these new species on each waterfall that live in this very specific environment. We were held at gunpoint a couple of times. We were talking to locals. We were doing all these amazing things. And then that summer, I had an expedition in Mongolia where I was team part of a international team of scientists. I was one of a few Americans and the rest were from Europe, a lot of Mongolians. And there I was lost in a forest full of quicksand that the natives said were inhabited by a devil. We were eating yak milk and yak yogurt. And it was just these things that made me feel super alive. And when we got back to the US, the scientists I worked with, they just kind of wanted to science. They're like, yes, that was amazing. But that's what it's like every time. And I'm like, why don't more people know about this? <laughs> Obviously, scientist sciencing is important. Like we, that's why the funding is there. You're going there to to answer important questions about the world. But how do you get somebody to care about a aquatic beetle that is like smaller than a grain of rice? Like how do you how do you get somebody if you just show them that they're not really going to be into it? But if you tell them a story about it, then they can be into it. I, I wanted people to like the things that I did, and I think a lot of scientists I know kind of stay within the science community their entire lives. And I kind of had my science community friends, but then I also had my other group of friends. And I really cared about making my other group of friends learn about the things that I did. And I saw a lot of scientists in college that I was around, they were 
all probably much smarter than me and, and very, very good academically, but they really just didn't care if other people knew about what they were doing. They, I mean, they just didn't care. And that's, that's okay. Um, I think now science communicators have become much more of a thing where they have learned that that's important to make people care because you can actually get more, more grant money to do more research. But I, I cared. I graduated early from college. I moved to LA and I just tried. I met with some production companies. I started a blog. I was doing writing. I was tweeting. I was started getting into photography once I moved to the Amazon and basically tried everything. And I found I wasn't a very good writer. or didn't really like doing it. What I found that I really excelled in was more just talking. And I give talks and I would host on videos and that kind of thing and, um, and present on camera. I found I, I really liked that and was better at that than other things. So I just kind of went for it. And it took a long time and a lot of ups and downs and living in the Amazon for a couple of years. But fortunately, these last, I want to say five, six, seven years, I've been working full time as a science communicator. And usually that's me being on camera, producing videos or making photos. That's a pretty big issue, the one that you mentioned. I feel like a lot of people look at science and it's just numbers or words on a piece of paper. But to be able to help that come alive so that more people can connect with it, I feel like that's really important, especially when we're trying to inspire action. Yeah. I mean, you, you got to get people to care. You got to get people curious. And there's also a lot of people who are fearful of a lot of the things that I study. And so that's, that's another challenge is how do you take somebody who absolutely hates spiders and <laughs> change their mind? And what's funny is I was one of those people. I was like legit arachnophobic until mid-20s. And I was an entomologist and I was traveling all over the world. But like if a spider fell on me, I'd be like, and I'd freak out. <laughs> But if it was any like a beetle, I'd be like, this is cool. And it's such an arbitrary line that gets drawn. But for some reason, I was like so afraid of them until I started living in the Amazon. And I realized, wait, they are everywhere around me all the time, <laughs> which could freak some people out. But I just started to I started to realize they were very unappreciated. We were focusing on a lot of bigger species and stuff. But I was like, wow, I bet you nobody knows a thing about the majority of these spiders that we're seeing out here. And I think just being exposed to them for so long just made me turn my fear into a bit of passive curiosity. And then that turned into a very active curiosity. Then that turned into full-blown research projects. And so I, I love even just when I'm hanging around people on set, like not all of my projects that I work on are super science or technology oriented. Sometimes they're a little outside of that. And if I have a producer or whatever around me who's afraid of spiders in my head, I'm like, oh, this is good. Let's see what happens by the end of the day. <laughs> and usually by the end of the day, they like, like have their cell phone out and they're like taking photos of a spider that they saw in a tree and they're bringing it over to show me or they text me like a month later being like, what is this thing? Like, And I'm like, oh, it's just a wolf spider. And they're like, cool, I took it outside. Normally I would have killed it. And I'm like, yes. There's a lot to be said for making people care about these things and and really pay attention to them and take 10 seconds to 30 seconds to a few minutes out of your day to look at an animal and think about it. Like that's, I think that's a lot rarer than people realize that so many people across the world don't really pay attention to nature their entire day. For those listening, I want, I want them to kind of challenge the people around them and challenge themselves to say like, are you taking a moment every day to, to realize what's around you? That's pretty cool because I live in New York City. And so that became a challenge for me that I'm like, 
all right, like, yes, I still get to go off to these crazy places and, and lucky to do that, but I live here. So how do I embrace what I have around me? And it's been fun. A lot of good bees out here. What does that make possible for us if we were to just open our eyes more to the immediate living species or natural beings around us? It helps us make the right decisions. You know, I think you have to base sustainability and that practice on on care. You have to love something to want to protect it. If you just acknowledge that something exists, you're not really going to feel that internal voice telling you to, to try to help it. The more people start to appreciate that, like even pigeons are pretty darn cool. If you if you learn about them, like they're cool. And if you saw, if you'd never seen a pigeon before in your entire life, and you looked at one of these things, you'd be like, "Wow, it's got models, and it's got these like purple metallic and green feathers on its neck. Like it's it's kind of a beautiful animal. We're just so open, we're so used to it that it's not a big deal. So the more that we start to to care about these things and appreciate them, I think that really starts to make a difference when it comes to things we buy, but also the way we vote and the way that we we make demands on what we want, not only for our current lives, but for the future generations. Because I think a lot about that with, with the direction the world's going and looking at what kind of a world I want my kids and grandkids to live in and what I think is important that is starting to slip away. So with all of this in mind, what do you think is the most challenging part uh, to try to get people to care? So you're very aware of what it is that people are drawn to. You're very aware of how science works. So you've been bridging these two worlds. What, what's your biggest challenge now? You know, it's as my career develops, it's finding that right formula. It's, you know, I want something to be smart, but I want it to be entertaining I want it to to bring in a giant audience, but I also don't want to sell out and and be sensationalistic and say everything's going to kill me or everything is like super deadly, you know? And so I think balancing the media, because I think a lot of networks are looking for certain things. People of the internet and people of Instagram love certain things and they love seeing some of these animals on being held by people, but a lot of times it's done in a pretty like unethical way. Mm. So it's it's kind of a challenge to get people to care about these things, but also doing it in a way that is respectful to the animals that will keep my credentials as a scientist and within the science community. Because there's there's things out there that if I wanted to, I could, you know, I've definitely had offers that are a bit more into the, the weirdness out there and stuff that is like very clearly made up. And if you get too far into that, then all of a sudden the people in the science community who you also want to be able to communicate with and show that they should tell the world about it, they could start to you know, stop believing in you. And so I, I think it's finding that right balance of voice, of keeping up with the way that we're consuming information really quickly on social media and finding ways to really captivate people and turn that captivation into action too. It's hard, but it's also kind of fun to be like, how do we make people learn without them always realizing they're learning? <laughs> so what have you found so far that's been the most effective in terms of getting your message across, but while still maintaining respect for science? You know, I think for sure, adding context to certain things is important. So if I am cuddling a really cute baby animal or something, I need to make people realize like why I'm doing this and why this is okay. And that there are other scenarios that aren't okay to do that. 
And then also just learning what works. And it's it's amazing how you can produce the most like 4K, whatever amazing video out there that doesn't quite get as much engagement as when you have some really fascinating creature in your hand and you just film your hand with this thing and then write an interesting caption about it. And so it's kind of amazing what draws people's eyes and what makes them feel like they're there versus feel like, wow, I could never be there. One thing that I love doing is figuring out what is the right story, what is the right type of thing that'll really get people to just think it's cool and get a lot of views. And when you have more views, that's that's more impact. And I think part of it is just taking advantage of what you see when you're out there. So on my last trip to Peru, I saw something I've wanted to see for years. And I've seen little bits of this behavior, but this was like the real deal where I saw these butterflies just swarming the faces of these turtles to drink their tears, to get sodium. And you never really think of butterflies and turtles hanging out. And when you see these butterflies, it's like a beautiful crown on the head of these turtles. When I put it out there, people thought there was like fake footage. Like they thought it was like CGI or something. (laughs) Like, no, like the wild is actually that cool. So it's a matter of seeing that, being able to say, okay, how do I document this? How do I film it? But then also how do I present it in a way that, that makes people see something and just be kind of incredulous and want to know more. I saw that video actually, and I was super fascinated. So I'll definitely link to that in the show notes so our listeners can check it out as well. And yeah, for you, you've been a TV host for quite some time, and I know you get to cover and learn about a wide range of topics. What was something as it has to do with sustainability that really shocked you and you feel like most people don't know and don't think about? Um, One story that I did. I was with the US Coast Guard. I was embedded with them, their their icebreaker called the Healy, which is one of only a couple icebreakers that the US has. It was a long trip. We were up north of Alaska and the plan for this big journey that the Coast Guard was doing was to get up there, get up into the ice. And it was a science vessel too. So it was really amazing to see all these research experiments going on and, and also seeing how the government can support this really cool science happening. But the goal was to get up there and at some point, you know, the ice gets really thick and you can actually step down from the ship and you could walk around the ice and you could do different research there on the actual ice up in the Arctic. But we were going for five days straight north. And the captain of our ship, who's worked up in the Arctic for a decade or so, he was like, you guys, like we, the ice is too thin. Like it is actually melted too much and he's seen it with his own eyes where there should be really thick ice we never got there we never got to the point where the ice was so thick that we could get off and walk around and it was it really blew my mind just being there and seeing the disbelief in these people's eyes and and it's one thing to read about it and you see all the data that is super convincing and like people should be convinced that climate change is is a real big issue that our polar ice cap is is melting But to actually be there and see it and see the disbelief in these people whose job it is to explore the Arctic and they're like, it's just not there anymore. It was, it was crazy. It was, it was really something that made me realize how real this is and how concerning it is for those people who have dedicated their entire lives to some of these things that we only read about in passing. And some people choose to just minimize it. Some people choose to ignore it or call it false. And then others of us 
you know, we, we oftentimes I find myself taking it to heart, but not really saying, okay, how do I use that experience to motivate my actions on a day-to-day basis? Because that's, that's a real big deal out there. So do you think there is an increasing sense of urgency from the scientific community to learn what it takes to really draw people in and get people to feel the reality of our current situation? For sure. And it's, it's a really interesting puzzle to solve because scientists have responded to the current denial with more science. <laughs> and, you know, the UN just came out with a, a giant report on climate change and just showing how screwed we are if we don't make a change. And so scientists keep doing these papers to sound the alarm and sound the alarm and sound the alarm and really be like, I mean, I don't know how much bigger the alarm can get because we should have been awake to this, you know, a couple of decades ago, people were already saying this is real. And now people are just screaming, it is real. And these are the effects. And this is what's going to happen to the earth in a few decades if we don't change. But that's not quite reaching to where it needs to. I, I think it's kind of preaching to the choir where the people who know, know it more. And I think fewer people who don't know are being changed by that. Like there's still this this big gap in how do you communicate? How do you bridge that? Or how do you force it? You know, how do you force it through our economies, through regulations and, and that sort of thing? So it's it's really tough because like you said, the it's almost like the emergencies on the scientists of how do they get that information to the people and for them to believe it. Like the data is there. The, the research has been done. It's like you can close the books. Like we're, we know that we need to make some changes. So how do you put that into the brains and the hearts of the people out there? It's a tough one. So maybe it's time for scientists to collaborate with uh, people who really influence trends and popular culture. Yeah. And, you know, you saw like Leo DiCaprio's Before the Flood was was a really strong one that I think did well. But I think a lot of people who follow Leonardo DiCaprio are probably more left-leaning in general and more likely to believe that. So I think it's it's finding these voices out there that, that are very good at bridging gaps that are really, really can reach across the aisle in a way. And it's it's tough, but um, and that's where that's where entertainment comes in. That's where you you see that there's these these people out there that make amazing TV shows and really entertain people. And I think they've done a really good job of inserting some of these things into their plots, even and making people who watch Grey's Anatomy suddenly care about something, or watch one of these other shows out there suddenly be like, oh, like this is something I should probably care about because you're watching characters on screen care about it. So there's a lot of inventive ways out there that it's being done. We just, we got to ramp it up. We're at that point where it's a big deal if we don't deal with this soon. And the last thing I want to touch on with you is I feel like when we're talking about environmental issues, a lot of focus is put on climate change, water, air pollution, animal welfare, wildlife extinction, and so forth. And these are all really important, but I feel like I don't hear a lot about how insects tie into this picture. And with you being the insect expert, I'd love to learn, how do you think insects tie into this equation of sustainability that we should know? Well, I think in a million ways. I'm glad you (laughs) asked. Um, You know, I, I think insects to me are, they're the forefront of everything, of of, uh, you know, a lot of our genetic research comes from insects. A lot of our understanding of the environment comes from insects, understanding of food, of all these things. There's, there's so much you can do with them as a tool to, to learn more about the earth. When it comes to sustainability, there's a variety of ways. For one, 
they've really shown the ecosystem services. That's a avenue where insects really shine, where you can actually do a calculation to say, how much money is it worth to have these insects out there just existing? And I think it's it's unfortunate that we have to think of everything in terms of money, but also that's the reality of how you get governments to change and economies to change is to be something that's that realistic. So when you look at the ecosystem services that insects do of pollinating, you know, spreading seeds of doing all these things out there, like we, we need them. They are important. They feed our fish that we like to fish. They feed our birds that we like to watch. Um, they're, they're a big deal out there and they save our governments billions of dollars, basically of stuff that otherwise we'd have to spend money on. So there's a big avenue there. They also are great to eat. I'm actually eating a EXO Cricket protein bar right next to me <laughs> right now as a little snack. So that's one of those areas that there's maybe like 1,200 species around the world that cultures eat. There's a lot of people that eat insects and they're very sustainable. They can grow pretty readily. And I'm really excited to see the future of insects as food when it comes to sustainability because they have a lower carbon emission output. They are super healthy. And I I just think there's cool things when you realize that we've been farming cattle for what, 15,000 years, they've been domesticated, something like that. We've come a long way. And we realize like, oh, we did all that work. And sure, meat tastes pretty good and milk tastes pretty good, but it's not very good for our environment with the amount of habitat that we have to use and the amount of CO2 and methane that they're putting off. So insects can come to the rescue. And I think there's, we're going to see a change in the next few decades on that type of sustainable food. You know, insects used to be like lobsters where there was actually laws against how many lobsters you could feed prisoners in the US. It was like two max. Otherwise, more than that, it'd be like cruel, which blows my mind. I'm like, people used to think of lobsters as these disgusting bottom feeders. And now we're like, hello, $35 (laughs) lobster dinner. Like, it's crazy how culture can shape the environment just by the desires and the wants and the trends. And so I think insects are a great way that we can push sustainability and start to market these things and start to invest money in to making these things on a big scale, making them sustainable. It's also, when it comes to animal welfare, um, you know, I know some vegans who are willing to eat insects because you can grow them in good environments, delicious food. And then to kill an insect humanely, you literally just put it in a freezer and they, because they're ectothermic, cold-blooded, they, they just go to sleep. There's no pain. It's just like their body just goes to sleep. And so I think there's some people out there that can get behind that and see that, okay, there's there's a lot of value with them. And then finally, insects are also a great indicator of the state of our world. And there's something to pay attention to for that reason, where we need to recognize what it was like for us growing up and how many butterflies and whatever we'd see in our backyard and how that's probably going to change in a couple decades and not seeing so much of that. We need to really take that to heart. Like if the insects are being impacted who are the most resilient, have adapted to everything, they're so diverse, whatever. If they're being affected, then we've really done something pretty wrong. We're starting to see that. There was a paper that came out in Puerto Rico, uh, I want to say in the last couple of weeks, where there's a rainforest there that is fully intact, but the insect population has dropped something like 70% in the last 20 years. Wow. Why? You know, it's not like people have gone in there and, and taken out resources. It's just 
the way humans are affecting the environment all around it and and in the air and everything we're we're doing something wrong that we gotta fix so if we start to care about these little guys around us we're gonna make better decisions on the big scale i mean that's a massive decline i feel like most people don't know about that yeah it's a big problem and there's a lot of scientists that were quoted when it came out where they were saying that it's basically the the scariest research project they've ever read about where you're just like wow like even in these places where we're not touching we're affecting drastically a similar study came out in germany sometime in the last year where they found a drastic decline in just things flying in the air you know bugs in the air and a lot of times people hear bugs in the air they just think of a nuisance but you got to realize that is they've been there a long time like this is just their habitat this is what they do and if they're missing, then we've done something wrong. And also think of everything else that they're affecting. What are they not eating? What are they not spreading? What's, you know, birds, what are they eating instead? If there's no insects around, their populations are probably being affected. The root cause of this is probably widespread and deep-rooted, and there are various factors. But is there anything we can do as individuals to support a healthier or like healthy populations of insects on our planet? I would say to anybody who has a yard or even like a little windowsill where you could plant something, plant native plants. It's wild how big of a difference that can make where you can, you know, I've seen apartments that are like a few stories up, like, you know, 12th floor apartment where there's a little, you know, flower garden outside the window and bees find a way. I've been on rooftops in, in downtown New York. And these creatures find a way to find that resource and, and like it. And I think when it comes to gardening and decorating, people oftentimes use these more exotic species that seem really cool or really pretty or you know really rare that they can kind of brag about. But that doesn't contribute to your native environment in a way that it should. Mm. And so I've been encouraging people to look at what grows in your own neighborhood and plant it. There's across the US, milkweed is really important to bring back the monarch butterfly. I think currently scientists say we need to plant 1.2 billion milkweed plants to revive the population to the way it used to be. So we got work to do. <laughs> but if everybody takes a little patch of their yard and says, okay, you know, we've got our grass area, we have our veggie area, what can we do for our native creatures here? and put in some beautiful native plants and just know that you've got a little bit of wilderness right there that you can you can watch. And as you put it there, I guarantee you will see insects you've never seen before come in and different types of bees and different types of butterflies. And they'll find it. They they figure it out. I've um, There's a wonderful garden down the street from me in Brooklyn and it's got all these amazing flowers. And I see butterflies there that I I've not seen, you know, for another 10 miles. Like they... They somehow know that there's this patch of goodness there and they track it down and they thrive. Yeah. So that's that's a really important way that people can make a big difference. That's beautiful. So what we can do is to create that native habitat for native species and they'll somehow just magically come. They do. It's it's a magic trick. If you build it, they will come. You know, obviously scientists have studied that show that big contiguous pieces of habitat are better than small, tiny patches of it. But you also have to think of habitat connectivity, where there could be a big place like Central Park and a big place like Prospect Park that are 10 miles away in New York. So how does a creature go from one of those to another? They need little little bits of, 
of good habitat along the way. So you could provide them a tiny one or a slightly bigger one or make your entire yard into a native prairie or a native forest. I've seen people do that and it's beautiful and it's awesome and it's it makes a difference. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise. Um, we would love to know like what's next for you that we can look forward to and support. Yeah, so I have a new show on the CW network here in the U.S. called Ready, Set, Pet. And that has been a really exciting project to work on because it's helping dogs and shelters find homes, um, which is very important to me personally. And then it's also helping renovate people's homes and yards to make it more animal friendly. The way I see it, you know, if you have a dog, you're, you got to go on walks and your dog's going to be sniffing into going into different parks that maybe you didn't go to before. And so I, I see dogs as a very good way of connecting people to nature. And that was something that happened with me and my dog when I was growing up. We get to teach lessons about native plants and how to really green up your space while helping a dog find a home. So that's been a fun one. And then always got new things to post on my Instagram and on the Jungle Diaries on YouTube. And then I'm also leading trips. So I think most of my trips for 2019 are sold out, but we also are adding one to Ecuador and Galapagos next fall, where it's me and another scientist and it's like adult science boot camp. If you want to go to the jungle and see it like it really is and learn about all the amazing things and we give fun lectures and we just have a great time and it's, it's intense in the best of ways. And so if anybody wants to hang out with me in the jungle, I'll be posting about that soon. Where can we go to stay updated on all these things online and on social media? Phil underscore Torres is my Twitter and Instagram. And then phil-torres.com is my website. But yeah, probably my Instagram is the best place for it, at phil underscore Torres. And I promise you'll see all sorts of cool bugs and other cool things. Before we go into our final five, I wanted to give you a discount code in case you're interested in our 2019 Green Dreamer planners. They feature our major Earth Awareness Days, 101 self-care tips and reminders, gratitude lists, weekly simple suggested actions to take and cross off, minimalist weekly and monthly pages, extra bullet journal pages so you can customize your planning, and more. And again, each planner contributes to the planting of 50 trees through international nonprofit Eden Reforestation Projects. If this sounds like it'd be helpful to you and you want to support reforestation and green dreamer podcast just head to greendreamer.com planners to see our six beautiful designs and use the code green dreamer for 10 percent off again that's greendreamer.com planners and discount code green dreamer for now on to our final five let's power through what's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow I have a friend named Imogene, biologist Imogene is her Instagram and Twitter, I believe. She's an amazing scientist who is studying big cats around the world and is a really good science communicator and talks about very important things. And I, she's just getting her PhD now and I just love seeing this next generation of science communicators come out there and just take on the world. So biologist Imogene is one that I, I really recommend you follow. She's awesome. Uh, what do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? that it's okay to have your down days and, you know, let the weight of everything that's going on in the world really sink in because I, I think that's normal. So I have my days where I'm like, okay, I'll allow that thought. And then maybe the next day I'll say, okay, I'll allow me to think about it. But then the next week I just have to be positive. And I say, okay, while we hear about a lot of the bad stories, there are still beautiful things happening around the world all the time and endless discoveries to be made. And 
new bits of science coming out that really inspire you on how many cool people are doing really amazing things and just changing the way we see the world. So I uh, somehow it works for me that I, I allow myself time to to feel the weight of what's going on. And then I say, you know what, now it's time to just look for the good because there's so much of it out there and we can't forget about that. We need those people to keep doing good and we need to support them and send links their way and, and show them we appreciate them. Uh, what's one thing you do for your health, either daily or weekly? I take walks. Now, I know I used to work in an office with a bunch of older people and they would take walks every day. And I was like, that's so weird. And I'm like, does that mean I'm getting old? I think it just means I live in New York City where you walk everywhere and I don't have a car anymore. You know, when I did, I used to have a Prius when I lived in LA, but in New York, you don't really need one. And so walking to me now, every city I, I'm working in around the US, I make sure I take a walk that's, you know, maybe a mile or two because you see different things. It's good for your health. And for me, I love exploring for those little patches of native plants and just seeing what's flying around. That's that's like a fun little pastime for me. So it's weird, but I, I think it's good because it it's good to keep your body moving. Everybody knows that that is like a, a very easy way to stay healthy into your 90s and, and beyond. So I'm planning to stay healthy for a long time. And yes, I do go to the gym and do all the things, but for my health of just like mental and physical, walking a lot does wonders. Uh, what's one thing you're working on right now to live more sustainably? I've been taking on a project at a time. And I think that's a good thing for people to do is to kind of look at their life and say, okay, what is one thing I can work on right now? And then once you kind of master that or it becomes a habit, add something else. And so we've done a pretty good job in my home of getting rid of a lot of like plastic wrap and plastic bags and stuff that we used to use too much. The next thing we're working on is um, diet because it's, it is very true that if you want to make a real impact on climate change, one of the best things you could do is to eat less meat. I admit to people that I do like eating meat and I always have. And so two things we start with. One is eating less and the other is making sure every meat that we do get is antibiotic free, it's hormone free, nothing added to it because that stuff has really bad cascading effects in the environment as well. And then also making sure that things are ethically raised. There's little challenges that there's all these amazing meat substitutes out there, things like Beyond Meat, like the Impossible Burger, that have done an, uh, an incredible job of tasting delicious, being just as healthy. We eat that all the time. And every barbecue I go to all summer, I'm bringing Beyond Meat and I like preach this stuff and they have these new sausages out and they're delicious. And so I'm like, I'm all about it. Like it's, it's really fun for me to find the next thing that I can eat because I'm I'm a meat eater and I never liked those soy-based things or tofu-based things. But now there's all these products out there that have really changed me. And I think if it could change me, then it can change a lot of people else out there. What makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? I would say I've had some really great conversations with people who are movers and shakers out there um, who work you know, high up at banks or high up in governments and they see the light. And they have access in a way that we don't. And it's been really cool to hear some people in banking talk about like just the way that sustainability and renewable resources are just becoming 
what these big investment things are wanting to invest in. And it was it was very hopeful that I was like, okay, we're finally at that point where maybe it wasn't the fact that it was going to destroy the earth that they wanted to get rid of coal mining. It's because there's other things out there that are worth investing in. Humans have put enough into innovations to say, hey, if you invest in this green energy, your investment is going to make you more money. So pay attention here. And so it, it's <laughs> It's great to see that some of these top banks are starting to look at the world that way. And they may claim they're doing it for the good of the earth, and maybe they are, but I really think they're just going to make more money. And so if that's how they make more money, I'm down with that. If you're if you're saving the earth at the same time, like obviously corporate responsibility is something that we should pressure our, our governments to hold them accountable for certain things. But if uh, ingenuity has gotten to the point where it's all good. If you're green, then that's that's awesome. That's really exciting for me to hear. And that's that's very keeps me hopeful. And what final words of wisdom do you have for us as green dreamers? I always tell people to say hello to your neighborhood bee or spider. It's weird to say, but if you're walking around and you see a bee on a flower, I want you to just stop and just watch it for like 30 seconds and just kind of see what it does. And I think you'll see that it's it's kind of interesting if you start to ask questions and just say, why is it going to this flower and not that? that? Where does it live? Where's its home? These little things that I, I think there's a great thing that can happen in a person's mind and in their heart if they just spend 30 seconds with some animal and just kind of think about their existence and what we can do to help them because they can't help themselves. This is the world they live in and we're the ones with the free will to make a change. Make sure to say hello to your neighborhood insects more, try to look at them with new eyes, and remember that we're the ones with the free will to create change. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. You can find the two tweetable takeaways from this interview and the full show notes with links and resources at greendreamer.com slash 102. You can reach me with feedback on how I can improve the show for you through the website's contact page. And you can find me on Instagram at Kamea Shane and also on our new account, Green Dreamer Podcast. I also want to take this moment to thank our reviewer, awelton.utah, for their feedback. They said it's not always easy to find positivity in regards to sustainability and regeneration. Generally, we're mad, upset, scared, and annoyed that other humans aren't giving up more, not to mention we're also guilted by others for our choices. Kamea doesn't follow this trend. She seeks out guests from all walks of life, does her research, asks great questions, and always remains positive no matter how grim the news is. Plus, she has a very listenable voice. End quote. Thank you so much. It's funny because I actually cringe sometimes listening to recordings of my own voice, but this is definitely good to hear and I'm getting used to it as well. So thank you so much for your positive feedback. Finally, as we're wrapping up, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer. <laughs>